If you have a Bible tonight, you can open it to Acts 15. You can navigate on your phone or tablet. We're going to look at a few selected verses throughout Acts 15 through 18. We're studying the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at uh, his second missionary journey tonight uh, from a thematic point of view. I'm going to develop a theme that I think will be interesting to us. I've only watched one episode of The Amazing Race. Any Amazing Race fans here? Some, I guess people really love that. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, so I'm not an expert, but I do know that the teams must interpret certain clues along the way if they're going to arrive at the proper destination. We've come to that time in the life of the Apostle Paul that scholars do call his second missionary journey. It's, it's accurate in a sense, although when we studied his earlier life, you saw that from the time he was saved on the road to Damascus, his life was one long missionary journey. He went out into the Arabian Desert in Damascus, in Jerusalem, up in Syria and Cilicia. He was all over the place before he ever had what they call his first missionary journey. But now we've come to his second. You can read it straight through beginning in Acts 15, verse 36, and ending three years later in Acts 18:22. That was their idea of a short-term missions trip, I guess, uh, in a day and age when transportation was a lot different than it is today. It's not an amazing race, but it is an incredible journey as you read uh, Paul having to discern certain clues along the way in order to go where God intended to send him. And so as we highlight certain stops on his three-year mission, we're going to be looking for some of the ways the Lord leads us on our own journey with him. If nothing else, as Christians, we want to be led by the Lord uh, and uh, know his will for our lives. That's another way of putting it. And, and so it's uh, always good to see how God has led godly men in the past and see if we can glean some things uh, for our own lives. Now, the reason for the trip lays a foundation for how God leads us on a day-to-day -day basis. We're going to start in Acts 15, 36. We read there. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And so very obviously, Paul wanted to see how the believers were doing. They had gone on a, the first trip. Uh, they had stopped in various cities, <clears throat> preached the gospel. People got saved. They established churches. And so now they wanted to see how they were doing. He actually wanted to go to them in order to strengthen them and encourage them. If you want to be led by the Lord, be able to discern his leading, I think it's going to require that you genuinely care about how others are progressing in Christ. Uh, and it may sound uh, simple, but I think a lot of times when we're thinking about God's leading or God's will, we're focusing in our own, on our own lives. God, what do you want me to be doing? Where do you want me to be going? Those kinds of things. And not that it's selfish or self-centered, but it, it can take on that kind of a, uh, an attitude. And so in the background, as a context for it, God says, I want, you to just, I want you to care about other believers. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I want you to care about others. I want you to uh, treat them uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that will form a context in which I will want to give you more leading uh, and tell you what to do and where you should be doing it. And so uh, it, it's going to require that you consider others over yourself. That's becoming harder and harder to do, or at least less and less prevalent in our society today. 
it, it seems like we are a self-oriented society, uh, but uh, as Christians, we want to be others-oriented. And God says, uh, start there, uh, consider others better than yourself, be like Jesus, and it will at least form a basis for me being able to give you my leading. Now, the trip seems to start on a bad note because immediately in verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, it's important at the outset, we understand this was not the typical church split over the color of the carpet or whether to put polished concrete on the floor rather than carpet or something like that. Some of you have been to churches like that where uh, the church is actually split or, or at least have severe division over issues like that. Actually, this wasn't a division at all. As it turns out, it was a multiplication because instead of one team of missionaries being sent out, there were two teams. I'm not saying it was ideal. Uh, obviously, we want to endeavor to live together in peace with other believers. There was definitely contention between Paul and Barnabas about this issue, uh, but um, it didn't cause division. Barnabas just finally said, well, I'm going to take Mark. If you don't want him to go with you, then we'll go somewhere else. You go somewhere else, and, and that was the resolve for it. Godly men won't always agree on things like methods, uh, and they don't need to. There's no uh, reason for us to agree on these secondary issues uh, of methodology. That's okay, and no one is at fault. Uh, you know, I think sometimes as Christians we think that there is only always one right way of doing things, and of course it's always my way. Uh, or your way, depending on the situation. So uh, the, it, when it comes to methodology and philosophy of ministry, uh, that's up for grabs. Uh, as long as what happens multiplies rather than minimizes ministry, then go with it. It's okay. If you're uh, going to have some kind of a contention over a method, you think something can be done better a different way, then, then go do it. Go do it a different way. See, a lot of what we face in the church, you've had this happen, I'm sure, if you've served anywhere in a position in the church, everybody always has a suggestion on how something could be done better. And you don't want to be mean to people, but you say, are you doing this? No, but I think you could do it better. This is what you should be doing. Well, why don't you do it for a while? Maybe you'll find, that, well, no, I don't, you know, it's not my ministry or it's not my calling. And so, uh, you know, it's an interesting phenomena. Uh, armchair quarterbacking happens, I think, in just about every walk of life. So Paul and, and Barnabas, they split. Not a division. Uh, not ideal, but there's nothing really wrong with it. And uh, scholars spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out who was right and who was wrong. They camp out on the verse there that says that the church commended Paul and Silas as if they didn't commend Barnabas. And But that's reading things into it. And so... Uh, we can't solve the problem. Uh, they solved it by multiplying ministry. So uh, jumping into chapter 16, verse 3. Or first of all, let me tell you where they went. Paul takes Silas with him to Tarsus. And from there they travel to Derbe and Lystra. It's in Lystra that he meets Timothy, 
who would become his frequent traveling companion, his fellow laborer in spreading the gospel, and a trusted pastor uh, to the churches there. Now in Acts 16, verse 3, Paul wanted to have Timothy go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now because Paul and Silas would be ministering to Jews in synagogues, and because Timothy was Jewish on his mother's side, he'd have to be circumcised in order to attend services and to not offend uh, the Jews that they were going to minister to. Uh, and uh, there's a great uh, a comparison between Titus, who was all Gentile, and Timothy, who was half Gentile, half Jew. Uh, remember when we studied the part of the life of Paul where he was at the Jerusalem Council, he brought Titus along. He says, hey, Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile, and he doesn't need to be circumcised or obey any of the Jewish law in order to be saved. He is saved. Uh, but when it comes to Timothy, you think, well, why is he having Timothy circumcised then? Is he compromising? No, he just knows that he's not going to be able to get to first base with the Jews because they are going to look at Timothy and say, well, you're half Jewish, and are, have you been circumcised? Are you following the law of Moses? And if the answer is no, then they wouldn't have a hearing in the synagogue where they wanted to preach the gospel. God will always lead you in ways that don't offend others in order that you might be better able to minister to them. Uh, we talk a lot about liberty in Christ, things that you can do uh, that are not uh, sinful, things that, uh, you know, are questionable maybe in the minds of some believers, but they're really not sinful. And, and that's, a, that's a great discussion. But one of the things that we learn here is that apart from whether or not you can or can't do something, God says, if you really want my leading, I'm going to want you to be the kind of person who doesn't go out of your way to offend other Christians. Because what I want to lead you into is greater ministry, greater sharing, greater appreciation for the gospel. And if you're going around with some version of the uncircumcised body, uh, you know, where you're going to just offend people, uh, if you're going into a culture that hates facial hair and you d- decide you're not going to shave your beard and mustache, uh, you know, God, that, that's not a, a good thing. Uh, I know... We, you know, the Calvary Chapel guys, we're the worst for that kind of thing. I've told you this story before, but when I was in the business world, I used to wear suits or jackets or ties all the time. It was just the regular attire. And, and so it was no big deal. Around here, if you put on a tie, it, it, actually only the person in the casket has the tie on. Even the pallbearers don't get dressed up here. Every time I go to a funeral, if I just wear a sport jacket and not a full suit, uh, Pam says, you're, t- you're underdressed. And I said, honey, I am going to be the best dressed person there. I can guarantee that. And the pallbearers all have just a clean cowboy shirt on. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. Maybe the deceased will have a tie. But when we went to Japan with a bunch of Calvary pastors, the Japanese, they want you to wear a jacket and a tie. And it was like a massive rebellion by these other guys, you know, about, well, I'm not wearing a tie. I'm not wearing a jacket. And, and so finally... We came up with this compromise where we would go up on stage with our jackets and ties on, and then we would ask politely, uh, be, we would say that we were uncomfortable wearing a jacket, and so could we take our jacket off, and then we would loosen our, loosen our tie. And in retrospect, we look like a bunch of idiot slobs, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, so just go with it. 
uh, don't offend people. So, so God wants you to be the kind of person that doesn't offend people. And then he says, that'll give you a basis for me leading you. With Timothy, they continued northward through Phrygia and Galatia. They strengthened the churches by delivering the proclamation of the Jerusalem council, telling them that Gentiles need not convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And so they had this good news for all of their converts. Uh, they could report to them that they had been to Jerusalem, the church had had this council, and all they wanted them to do was to not offend Jewish believers, but that they were fully saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and to not listen to these Judaizing teachers who came around. It's at this point that Paul was prevented by God from going in certain directions. We read in verse 6 of Acts 16, now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to get into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we... Luke uh, joins them at this time. We sought to go to Macedonia, uh, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we're left to speculate as to how exactly they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. We don't know. It may have been by a word of prophecy uh, that was given as they would, uh, you know, these are the kind of guys you assume were praying about everything, and so they would pray and say, uh, you know, Lord, you know, let's go to Bithynia. We want to preach the gospel in Bithynia, and then maybe one of them with the gift of prophecy would say, you know, thus says the Lord, don't go to Bithynia. Go by Mycenae. Uh, so we, that might have been it. may have been by outward circumstances. It may be that they couldn't get passage to one of those cities. Uh, or there was no way to get there. Uh, you know, maybe they were having uh, road construction from one of the uh, government projects at the time. Who knows, you know? Uh, is there an awful lot of road construction going on in the valley right now? Everywhere you go, I, I, can't, I can't get there from here anymore. You know, 12th and Grangeville is all torn up, and uh, I go out to visit the uh, LPD today, and that's all torn up around there, and then the on-ramp that I wanted to get on was, was all torn up, and I mean, somebody has a lot of money. Caltrans, I guess, has all the money. All the lottery money is going to Caltrans, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, so who knows? We're not told how the Holy Spirit forbid them, but God intervened directly and wouldn't let them go in certain directions. The vision, however, was pretty plain. Not much of an interpretation needed. I'm sure they prayed about it, but Paul saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, hey, I don't know if he had a little sign like the roadrunner used to hold, you know, or something. Uh, but uh, it's, he knew that he was supposed to go to Macedonia. Now, we must certainly say that God can lead this way by a vision which we would consider an exercise of the gift of prophecy. And we get into this area, people who are biblically well-taught and biblically conservative like us, we get a little shaky because you, you kind of know it's true that God can still speak through prophecy and visions, but you're, you're worried that you're going to become some kind of Pentecostal nut job, you know, and start seeing all kinds of weird things. And, and uh, when you talk about being led by visions or prophecies, people get a little bit nervous. So what I want to notice, uh, this vision was in a context of other occurrences. 
In this case, it was in a context of their being prevented from going to other towns and regions. And so it was taken together with that in order to be acted upon. And I'd add also that the prerequisite to all this supernatural leading was the fact that Paul and the others were already on their way. They were actively involved in sacrificial ministry. And so the vision stands. I mean, all by itself, if that's all we had, it's valid. Uh, and, and uh, you know, God giving Paul a vision. But there was a lot more going on. He'd, he'd prevented him from going certain places. And Paul was looking for direction. Uh, and then he gave, gave him this vision. And he was already on his way, actively involved in serving the Lord. And so taken together, you have a better feeling about that vision. Uh, I've re I won't relate the whole story, but uh, when we first came to Hanford, uh, the Lord gave us a vision and, uh, that, that helped to confirm our decision to come here. But it was in the context of having come here and being invited to come here and uh, praying about it and all of those kinds of things. And, so, and already being actively involved in the ministry. And so, so visions aren't as weird as people want to think they are. Uh, you know, I, I, but they always, they don't just exist in a vacuum. They exist in a time of serving the Lord and already being led by the Lord. So the whole picture then would be this. Get busy serving the Lord. As you are, he will order your circumstances to lead you. And sometimes he perm he'll permit you to do something. Other times he'll prevent you from doing something. All the while, you need to be open to receiving a supernatural word from him which you can follow as long as you keep it within the context in which it was given. And so if you're, if you're doing all of those things, then you're on a good, solid track. Now, the very next day, the missionaries sailed across the Dardanelles, which separated them from Europe. In Philippi, the man from Macedonia turned out to be a woman. It was Lydia. Uh, she heard Paul's preaching. And on Pentecost in 50 AD, Lydia was baptized along with her entire household. While in Philippi, Paul cast a demon out of a female slave. Her masters got angry that they had lost the ability to make money from the slave's demonic divination. And so they stirred up the city against Paul and Silas. They were arrested, beaten with rods, and put in prison. Uh, soon after arriving in jail, a miraculous earthquake caused all the cell doors to swing open and the bonds of all the prisoners to be loosed. That's the famous event that led to the conversion of the prison guard who uttered those amazing words, what must I do to be saved? And uh, so it's a pretty fascinating uh, episode in the life of the Apostle Paul. God was still leading them despite the adversity. From deep within a prison cell, while locked in stocks, I mean, the thing is, you, you, I sometimes overlook this or forget about this. They're not only underground in a dungeon uh, in, in one of those terrible kinds of prisons that you see in medieval movies, uh, but they're also in stocks, and they're singing praise songs and praying, and um, I believe preaching the gospel because it, it says all the prisoners were listening to them. And so Paul thought, well, I've got a captive audience. We've got nothing better to do. We're not going to be doing much sleeping in the stocks. And so we might as well praise the Lord and uh, share the gospel. And so God was still using them. If you want to be led by the Lord, you're going to need to be willing to suffer for his sake. What I'm saying is that your prayer, lead me, Lord, 
assumes that that leading could land you in stocks in a dungeon. Uh, you know, so you don't pray for suffering. Uh, I don't even pray for patience anymore because tribulation works patience and so God can bring that in my life. You know, if he thinks I need to be more patient, then that's up to him. But uh, uh, if you find, but you need to be the kind of person, if you're gonna pray, Lord, lead me. Tomorrow morning when you get up or tonight, whenever you have your devotions and you say, Lord, I want to be led by you, you need to realize somewhere in your spirit that it assumes that God can lead you uh, into adversity uh, in order to be truly uh, glorified. And we look at episodes like that with the Apostle Paul, we think, man, what a great story. In jail, in stocks, singing praise songs, uh, earthquake, Prisoners don't escape because, they're, because of the authority of Paul and Silas. Jailer gets saved. It's an amazing story, but they had to be willing to be led in that way. And quite honestly, sometimes uh, in the Christian life, uh, believers get weary in the work. They don't want to suffer. Uh, they, wanna, they don't want to be led in that way, and so they, they beg off. This was the real problem with John Mark, we believe, who... Paul didn't want to take with him. John Mark wasn't the kind of guy, at least at that time, at least on the first missionary trip, he wasn't the kind of kid you wanted to have around when you were thrown into a Roman dungeon and put in the stocks. He was likely not to sing praise songs and pray all night because uh, he left them when the going got tough and it wasn't even that tough. I've been on missions trips uh, with people who just ha are having a really hard time. Uh, and, and, you know, this is just because they're homesick or something like that. I miss seeing the Great Wall of China because I had to babysit one of the uh, young men, who, well, he was in his 20s, uh, because he was terrified that we were in Beijing. He just, uh, it just overwhelmed him that, you know, we were in communist China and all of this, and he didn't want to come out of his room and all of this kind of stuff. And, and uh, uh, but, you know, it, it's no fun uh, and so Paul, you know, Paul's a veteran missionary. He'd been beaten many times before. He'd had lots of adversity, and he thought that if things like this were going to happen, you need to have a Silas with you and not a John Mark. Uh, and so we need to be willing when we pray to be led, uh, to be led in those ways. Now, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and Luke, traveled through the cities of Amphipolis, uh, Apollonia, and they arrived in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, Paul visited a Jewish synagogue, and for three consecutive Sabbaths, Saturdays, uh, they explained why Jesus is the Old Testament prophesied Savior of mankind. Although many believed what was said, certain Jews, envious of the gospel, formed a mob and started a riot. The riotous crowd went to the house of Jason and uh, seeking Paul and Silas. When they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the local civil authorities. They accused them of wrongdoing. In a short time, however, Jason and the brethren were let go. They posted bond and they were let go. Paul and Silas were, uh, they, the brethren thought it best to get them out of town, so they went to Berea. The Bereans were different. They were not only willing to listen to what they had to say, they also went and verified what was preached against the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, many Bereans came to believe the gospel. It's from this uh, episode that we, as Christians, we always encourage other people to be like the Bereans. Listen to what you've been told when somebody's teaching the word of God. Take careful note of it 
and, uh, and then go back and read it for yourself. Make sure, uh, you know, that uh, it's accurate. Uh, because no one is 100% infallible. No Bible teacher is. I certainly am not. Uh, I don't know what my rating would be. But uh, we should, why don't we, we could do that. We could rate people on accuracy. They, didn't they for a, a lecturing, or no, at the debates, didn't they have like fact checkers at the debates, you know, so that when President Obama said it's really better than it was four years ago, you know, warning flags could go off and stuff. But, uh, uh, of course, the best is yet to come. Anyway, <laughs> I want to believe that. Uh, so anyway, yeah, fact check. So these were, the Bereans were the original fact checkers. And by the way, since we're intimate on Wednesday night, I can tell you, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of I, I think some people in our church too are a little bit dismayed that, that I, I, te- I teach from the iPad and that I don't have a leather Bible in my hand. I don't have a real Bible. You know, and yeah, the good old, the good old King Jimmy, you know, and stuff. And so it doesn't matter that I have 27 Bibles in my iPad and commentaries and that I have my iPhone ready also. I mean, so, so we're a little bit, uh, you know, I mean, if, if there's no electricity and I can't charge up, I still have Bibles. But, you know, uh, we don't mind if you want to just bring your iPad or your tablet or your phone and follow along that way. And you can insert notes and you can read the transcripts and stuff. So, so we're not against the Bible. Uh, we love the Bible. Uh, and, and it's actually easier to fact check. I have people texting me all the time, you know, in the middle. I'll say something and they'll text me and say, actually, it was this, you know, and stuff. So the Bereans would have been into technology because they could have done their fact checking right there in fact they may have been the 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 guys who do wikipedia might be descendants of bereans you know so i don't know so they're preaching in berea unfortunately jews from thessalonica arrived in the city seeking to cause more trouble uh people just couldn't get enough of paul and and trying to destroy him and so he immediately left for the coast and set sail for Athens while the rest of his party stayed in Berea. Paul had an interesting experience in Athens, uh, and I'm not talking about him preaching on Mars Hill, but before he gets to that, it says in 1716, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. As I said, Paul would go on to have a famous confrontation with Greek intellectuals and philosophers on Mars Hill. It was birthed by this being provoked in his spirit. And so it seems that God can lead you through a spiritual provocation as you are observant to things happening around you. Uh, I, I can't really describe it any more than that. Um, you know, some of these things, are, are, we actually are getting into a realm of my personal relationship with the Lord and yours and how God actually leads you and how you listen for his voice. But Paul finds himself in Athens and he's walking around and everywhere there's an idol to some God. And, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of idols. There's even an idol to the unknown God in case they forgot a God. You don't want to, uh, it's kind of funny, you don't want to offend a God uh, because they do all kinds of crazy things to human beings. But if you're 
putting up an idol to him and he's unknown to you, I mean, that, that seems doubly offensive. So this is your idol, whatever your name is. And, you know, you don't even know me and I'm going to kill you. But anyway, so Paul gets, as he sees this, he gets provoked in his spirit and it begins to lead him. I think this happens a lot with Christians. I was just talking to Rudy about some of the... Uh, uh, political things that are going on, and I and, uh, was remembering he brought up Jack Hibbs from Calvary Chapel of Chino Hills. Uh, it was Jack, uh, I don't know the whole history of it, but it was Jack and Calvary Chino Hills that were really instrumental in the whole Proposition 8 movement during the last election because he was provoked in his heart about what he saw happening to biblical marriage uh, and he wanted to do something about it. And uh, so sometimes we talk about that as a burden from the Lord, but in this case, they use the word provoke. So, so if you're going to be led by the Lord, you have to be an observant person, spiritually observant to what's going on around you. Uh, you need to be one of those people who, like when people are having discussions, they, um, you know, then there's one person who kind of brings it to a spiritual point. And, and, and you think, I wish I had thought of that. Here we are talking about it as a strictly carnal situation, but you know, then they bring it to a spiritual point. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that over the next four years uh, where we have to step back and realize that God is in control. So um, this is the kind of person that Paul was, and if we want to be led, that's the kind of person we need to be. From Athens, Paul crossed over to Corinth the seat of the Roman government of Achaia. He remained there for a year and a half, spreading the gospel to Jews and Greeks with much success. Paul had another vision in Corinth in verse 9 of chapter 18. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Don't keep silent. I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Could the great apostle Paul really have been afraid? Well, of course he was afraid. Otherwise, God doesn't come to you and say, don't be afraid. God knows you're afraid. He knew Paul was afraid. God can lead you to a place and you nevertheless feel afraid or discouraged or embarrassed or any of a number of other things. I'm not saying those things are good or that they are the places God leads you to. I mean, God isn't planning to lead you to a place of embarrassment. Uh, God doesn't say, where can I lead Gene today where he will be afraid? But he will lead us to places where if I'm in my own strength, I will feel things like that. I will feel afraid even though I'm in the will of God. When you find yourself feeling that way in a place where you know God has led you, you need a fresh vision of Jesus. It doesn't have to be a literal vision, an appearance of the Lord to you the way it was with Paul. You can get a fresh vision from the word through worship by seeking him. Uh, and, and so when, what times I am afraid or any other emotions that are crushing me, I, I need to really look to the Lord. I need to see the Lord uh, standing with me, telling me, don't be afraid, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, don't be whatever I am because I am with you uh, and there's still a work to do. Paul remained in Corinth until the spring of 52 AD when he traveled to the port city of Chentria. In the city, he had his head shaved due to a vow that he had taken. Now, this vow of the Apostle Paul's has caused quite a stir among Bible scholars and commentators. Some don't want to admit Paul was taking a full-fledged Jewish Nazarite vow. 
To them, it seems a step backward into legalism. They suggest that it was some other kind of vow or that it was a modified Nazarite vow or those that are really strange, they suggest that Paul was actually in sin and that he shouldn't have done this at all. The answer is really quite simple. Without ever compromising the gospel, Paul said, I want to be all things to all men. And, it, and so if he could take a Nazarite vow uh, and minister to some people, then he would do it. He was willing to act himself as if he were under the law of God when he worked among non-believing Jews. Among Gentiles, he did not observe Jewish rites and rituals. He ate whatever foods were offered to him, and he dressed the way they dressed. When asked to explain himself, he'd say all things to all men in order to win some. Most of us will probably not be called upon to take such radical steps. Uh, there's a uh, pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor, I've lost track of him now, I think he's still in Mexico somewhere, but uh, Juan Domingo, many years ago, 25 years ago, I heard him talk. Uh, he's an American citizen, but God called him to Mexico, and he, he renounced his American citizenship to become a Mexican citizen, because God wanted him to really, you know, get engrossed into that culture. And my first thought was, well, that's stupid, uh, but it, it's the kind of thing that God can do if you're uh, asking. You, you know, this asking to God to lead you is kind of a dangerous thing, really, because sometimes they say, all right, I'll, you want to be led? Here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, and so we probably aren't going to get that radical, uh, but uh, the philosophy is great that if we're going to be led, we have a willingness to be all to all in order to win some. Uh, and, and so sometimes, whether that means we have to get out of our comfort zone or recognize, I don't know, other styles of music or other ways of doing ministry or whatever it would be to understand that some people are just not going to be ministered to uh, the way we are and by the things that we do. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not compromising the gospel or saying, you know, that in Paul's case, he wasn't saying that taking a Nazarite vow was necessary for salvation, uh, and, and so there, there wasn't really a problem with it. Paul then began his homeward journey because he wanted to observe Pentecost at Jerusalem. He was accompanied by Aquila and Priscilla as far as Ephesus. From there, he made his way by sea through Rhodes and Cyprus to Caesarea. From there, he went up to Jerusalem. This would be his fourth visit to Jerusalem after becoming a Christian. After keeping the Feast of Pentecost, he returned to Antioch. 1822, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. One final observation as we leave Paul in Antioch. Paul had a base of operations, a home church that he was sent out from. He started in Antioch. He finished in Antioch. Even though he founded many churches, excuse me, Antioch was his home church, we would say. And so the final thing I would say is that if you're serious about discerning God's leading in your life, you're going to need the love and protection and fellowship and blessing of a local fellowship. Uh, and so hopefully we've seen some things tonight as Paul was led for three years on this trip that we don't normally think of in terms of finding God's will for our life or being led by the Lord. Uh, but uh, uh, they've ministered to me this week, and I uh, hope they have to you as well. Amen? Let's have a time of...